Kids, you are free to go to your teaching, and adults, you are not. You get to stay. Well, again, welcome uh, to Church on Mill. Glad that you're here, and happy Father's Day. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John 15. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair rack in front of you. Feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible for yourself. That's our gift to you. And we are in a, a series of messages this summer where we're walking through uh, less than a 24-hour period. It's the, the last evening that Jesus was with his disciples before he was arrested and tried and would be crucified the next day. So Jesus was fully aware of what was coming. He knew what was going to happen to him. And so the words that he shares are especially important and powerful because they are the final words before his death to his followers. So we're in John 15 today. C.S. Lewis, a number of you will have read, he was a great English writer who was an atheist and became a Christian through the influence of a guy named Tolkien. Uh, the non-readers in the room would be familiar with Tolkien. Why? Lord of the Rings, the movies, of course. Yes. So Tolkien had a huge impact upon uh, C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote a lot of books. One of those was a book called The Four Loves. And um, in this book, he teaches through the different words for love that existed in uh, the Greek language, so the, the language the New Testament of the Bible was written in. We have one word for love. They had at least four. And in this book, he walks through the different words for love. And in the start of one of the chapters, he makes this statement. It'll be on the screens behind me. When either affection, so one of the loves he's referring to, or eros, is one's theme, one finds a prepared audience. The importance of beauty, the importance and beauty of both have been stressed and almost exaggerated again and again. But very few modern people think of friendship, a love of comparable value, or even a love at all. What do you think of that? What he's saying is that when we think about romantic love, there's always people that want to hear about that. You don't have any trouble drawing an audience to hear about how to have romance. Or even familial love, which he refers to as affection, the, the love between biological family. There's no shortage of people wanting to hear about that. If you have a family, you have a busted up family, right? And you want to learn how to do it better. You want to learn about the love between biological family. Friendship? A friendship love? Is that even a love at all? He says nobody wants to hear about that. Love between people not biologically related and not romantically interested. Is that even love at all? Well, why would Lewis say that about friendships? Maybe part of the reason is that so few people actually have real friendship. Later in the same chapter, he says this, friendship is, in a sense, not at all derogatory to it, the least natural of loves, the least instinctive, organic, biological, gregarious, 
and necessary. It is least commerce with our nerves. Nothing that quickens the pulse or turns you red and pale. In other words, there's something biologically natural about physical attraction. It's just part of being a human being. And most people can't help but adore their kids. So romantic love and affection love seem to be natural to us. But friendship, that doesn't get your blood pumping or turn your cheeks red with embarrassment or embarrassment, does it? Modern people don't often think of friendship as essential to life and maybe even not as something that's loving. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible? You certainly didn't come today expecting a lecture on friendship. But it turns out it has a lot to do with the Bible. You see, if Lewis is right, then how we read the Bible might have a lot to do with whether or not we see friendship in it at all. Because it turns out the Bible has a lot to say about friendship. In contrast to modern people, the ancient world worked differently. Lewis said this, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most human of all loves, the crown of life, the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Now, with those two contrasts in mind, let's read John 15, 9 through 17. John 15, 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. This is Jesus talking. Abide, which we learned last week, means remain, stay, dwell, continue. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Why does Jesus speak his words? So that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, so, for the servant does not know what his father, the master, is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard my father All that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and that whatever you ask for in my name, he may give to you. These things I've commanded you so that you would love one another. Maybe Lewis is right. Maybe friendship matters. Maybe friendship is love. So let's think today about friendship together. Briefly, I'd like us to consider the value of friendship, as Jesus outlined it here. The actions of friendship, in other words, what do friends do? And then finally, the problem of friendship. And don't elbow the person next to you. So the value of friendship, let's start there. Jesus says that there's no greater love than the sacrificial love between friends. Now, that's pretty staggering if you stop to think about it, isn't it? That's simply not the way most of us think. 
Jesus says that the consuming passion of infatuation with a possible lover is not the greatest kind of love. And oddly enough, on Father's Day, he would say that the love of a father for his son isn't even the greatest love. Or the 2 a.m. feeding of an exhausted, exhausted mother to her son or daughter isn't the greatest love. Jesus says the greatest love is a friend sacrificing himself or herself for another. That that is the pinnacle of love. Now, am I the only person in the room that that sounds kind of weird to? That sounds kind of bizarre. That's simply not the way we think about friendship. Let's stop there just for a moment. If we took Jesus' claim at face value, the love, the sacrificial giving love of one friend to another is the greatest form of love. If we just took that at face value and said that's true, can you imagine how different our schedules would be if we believed that? How much less time would be spent on myself and more time would be spent on giving to other friends? Can you imagine how radically different we would prioritize time with people? How quick we would be to help one another? How easy it would be to not feel lonely? How different our reaction to conflict would be? Minor misunderstandings and offenses would simply be set aside. And major ones, the kinds that typically cause us to fracture relationships, would instead be things we would seek forgiveness and reconciliation through. Can you imagine how much richer and joyful life would be if we had those kinds of friends? In reality, the vast majority of us in the room might not even know a single other human being that we could say, they've been that kind of friend to me. And yet Jesus says, this is the, the very pinnacle, the greatest form of love, is to know a friend like that. If we simply took Jesus at his word, greater love has no one than this, then the world would be turned upside down with the love of Christ, wouldn't it? But what exactly marks that kind of friendship? Because clearly it can't mean what Facebook teaches us. You, you know me, or you know someone who knows me, or you want to be able to have more friends on your page, then click here. It takes no effort, no commitment, no action at all on our parts. Most of us have extremely few actual friends who we would say we love them and they love us. Really what we have is more acquaintances than anything else. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. So let's consider the second thing this passage shows us. It's not just the value of friendship, but it shows us the actions of friendship. In other words, what, what do friends do? How do friends treat each other? How do they live towards one another? Well, Jesus said they do two things. First, he said that friends open up, that the action of a friend is to open up to others. According to Jesus, true friends let friends in. Not, of course, from the deadly Tempe heat, but into, into our hearts, into our lives. In genuine friendship, there's significant, open, transparent, 
conversation. Now, I don't think that means the first time you meet somebody that you're somehow spilling your life secrets to them. But over time, is, is there a trajectory in the relationship such that the conversation is becoming more honest, more open, more transparent, more significant? Us letting ourselves be people who are known and others doing the same. In genuine friendship, that's what happens. You open up and the other person opens up. You get to know each other. Trust is built over time. And as that trust grows, then what's shared grows. And as what's shared grows, then there is more reciprocity given to the, the kind of care that's needed. Are you with me? That makes sense? If you have a relationship with someone and you're always sharing what's going on in your life and nothing else is ever shared in return, that's not really a friendship. That's not what Jesus says friendship is. It might be a helping relationship, and I don't even mean to imply that that's bad, but that's not really a friendship the way Jesus talks about them. True friends open up. They're honest. They're appropriately transparent. They spend meaningful time together. There's give and take. There's an exchange of life. Now, Jesus says that's what friends do. That's the action of a friend. Now, about half the room, particularly the men, are probably squirming at this point, right? That's a little scary to us. We're taught that men are tough-skinned and don't ever share anything with anyone. (laughs) That's not actually a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness. Jesus says that friends open up. Friends are people who are not so self-absorbed that they only talk about themselves in ways that manipulate other people to think more of them. Friends instead are people who are honest, who are transparent. Loving friendship is marked by genuine care and conversation. Now, fascinatingly, Jesus says that we know that we are friends of God because the Father has opened himself up to us. Isn't that shocking? Jesus says, you can know you're my friends and that you're friends of God because the Father has opened up his plan to you. He shared his very heart with you. He's told you who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. And because he's disclosed that information to you, because he's He's put you on the inside. He's given you knowledge. You're in the know. Not because you're smarter or better, but because he's chosen to reveal it to you. Then you can know you're friends of God. Isn't that amazing? So all that he's really saying is, do do what I've done. Open yourself up to others. Let them really know you. And then they'll be your friends. So friends, open up. But the passage says something else, that friends do something in addition to opening up. It says that friends lay down. Look at verse 11. Or verse 13, I'm sorry. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. A genuine friend is someone not using you as a pawn to get what she wants. 
She's a person that willingly sacrifices herself for your good. Friends lay down their lives for each other. They sacrifice good for one another. They joyfully do what's best for others. Here at Churchill Mill, we talk a lot about the, the one another's of the New Testament. So if you were to read Matthew through Revelation, you'd find literally dozens of times where Christians are commanded in the context of the local church to live in a particular way towards one another, to do certain things, to become a compelling community. In other words, Jesus says, here's what the church is supposed to be. This is what it looks like. I've pulled out just a few. It said godly friends love each other, show hospitality to each other, serve each other, comfort each other, bear each other's burdens, be kind and forgiving to each other, exhort each other, teach each other, encourage each other, challenge each other. Friends confess their sins to each other and pray for each other. Godly friends are committed to what their friends need not simply what they might want that particular day. That's what friendship is. Friends open up, and friends lay down in such a way that they're sacrificing their own desires for what's good for others. And what's amazing about the kingdom of God, the church of Christ, is that it turns out living to sacrifice myself for your good is actually what's best for me. That, that life is meant to be spent at the care and concern of others. So friends open up and friends lay down. Jesus says that's what friendship is. But there's a problem, of course. The problem is we are incapable of being that kind of friend. That kind of friendship apart from God simply doesn't exist. Whether you're 10 or you're 70, you have the scars of friendship gone wrong. Do you not? Whether you're in fifth grade or you can't remember fifth grade, you have experienced friendship gone bad. Every single one of us have experienced gossip, lying, compromising, anger, selfishness, envy, people walking away when there's disagreement. Without a doubt, the most painful experiences of my life have been when people I thought were friends, Christian people, not perfect people, but, perfect, but people I really believed were friends and they had some credibility, some track record of opening up and laying down, turned out to be people who were actually against me. Have you, have you experienced that? But here's the catch. All of us uh, are not simply victims of friendship gone awry. We're actually people who have caused friendship to go awry. Now, part of the struggle is that the standard is impossible, right? What did Jesus in this passage say is the standard of friendship? He said himself. So in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another to the extent that it's comfortable for you. Or when it's being received well and being turned back upon you. 
or when it's easy and doesn't really cost you anything. That's the extent of my friendship. No. Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. Or to reach back into the Old Testament, Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves once or twice a week. No, a friend loves at all times. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Real friends are loving and sacrificial like Jesus. Now, the average person in America today will live 78 years. That's 28,470 days. So a friend loves at all times. A friend loves 28,000 plus days. A friend loves like Jesus. Anybody discouraged at this point? It is impossible, apart from God, that you would be that kind of friend, that I would be that kind of friend. So there's a huge problem. And the problem, it turns out to be internal, not external. Sin reeks from the human heart. Selfishness, jealousy, envy, lust, lying, pride, manipulation, all of the things that ruin friendships come from within my own heart, not from without, not from my circumstances. Friendship may be valuable, and we may, we may know what it is, how to do it, but we're completely unable to be that kind of friend because sin is in the way, because sin molds me into a person that's much more concerned about myself than you. It, it prohibits, it impedes, it makes it impossible for me to be the kind of friend God calls me to be. So it turns out that if I am ever to be a friend, I must first receive the friendship of another. To put that another way, if I'm ever to have the hope of becoming a friend to you, then I must first experience the friendship of someone else. And it's not friendship with a person, but with God. See, friends, the gospel is the announcement that God has done for us what we couldn't do so that we could become his friends. And that then that friendship with God would form a link through which we could become friends with one another. That's what Romans 5 says. Look on the screens. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we now have been justified, meaning been declared right with God by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? Friends, while we were hostile enemies of God, Jesus gave himself on our behalf. He longed to include us in his joy. He desired that his name would be great, such that he could make us his friends. And we must always remember, as the passage in John has told us, that 
Christians, you are a friend of God because God's chosen to reveal his plan to you and not because you're better or smarter or more holy or choosing to do more good things, but simply because of God's sovereign plan. And that that plan of God ultimately isn't just for you. It's that you would be sent out on the mission of making disciples. That's what weeks like tonight are all about. Gathering people together who have come to know Christ, extending that friendship to others with the hope that they too could know the forgiveness and the fellowship and the friendship of God. So the love of the Father for the Son forms a link in which the Son gives himself for people. And those people can then become friends with God. And then that friendship can be extended among other people who know God, such that that attracts people who are not yet followers of God. And so there's this link that happens as people who have come to know Christ can now become real friends. Isn't that encouraging? What Jesus has commanded us to do, and that's love each other in a way that is consistent with how he loves us. Open up and lay ourselves down. He enables us to do through the friendship that we're given with Christ. The friendship that characterizes the church is not an exclusive friendship. It's not a holy club. It's a supernatural love that draws others in. So friends, I can't be a good friend apart from God. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, I can't help but become a real friend. In my studies this week, this passage really stood out to me because I've read John 15 hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and never noticed that it said anything about friendship. Never noticed that it was a point of emphasis, in fact, in the passage. That Jesus says, abide, walk, remain in my love because you're my friend. And as you do that, then you will become a friend. Now here's a little pop quiz, a little trivia for those in the room who perhaps have walked with God a long time. In the Old Testament, so the Genesis through Malachi, the first two-thirds of the Bible, there are two people referred to as friends of God. Two and only two. Any ideas who they are? Moses was one of them. And Abraham. So, two of the people that, if you've read the Old Testament, we would get the picture. These are extremely prominent people in the story of God. Moses, who led God's people out of Israel, out of Egypt, towards the promised land, likely was the person that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Abraham, who started the whole thing, who was called by God to become the father of the Israelites. Those are two pretty prominent dudes, right? This means yes. All right? No one else is said in the Old Testament to be a friend of God. And so Jesus' disciples would have grown up hearing Abraham and Moses were the very examples of living a life of faith. They were people chosen by God for very prominent roles. And they were friends of God. But they likely would never have conceived 
of them themselves being called friends of God. And yet Jesus comes along and says, not the superheroes of the faith, but the common schmoes, the you and me. We know God like Abraham and like Moses. We're friends of God. And just like God used Moses and Abraham to extend his name to others, God wants to use you as his friend to share his name with others as well. Isn't that rich? Encouraging? God opens up and God has laid himself down so that we could know him as friends and then extend that friendship to others. You see, the, the problem in our friendships is often that we're looking for something in those friendships that we can only get from God, whether that be love, acceptance, identity, security. And so if, if we set up another person to provide for us what God says only Jesus Christ can provide, then that friendship is going to go bad. But when friendships become properly ordered, Jesus first, I'm friends with God because God sought me out. He saved me. He's in the process of making me more like Christ. Then I can become a good friend, a true friend, not a perfect friend, but a friend that can help you know more of who God is. That's the order it's supposed to work in. Lewis, the same person we referenced earlier, reminds us of that. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthliest dearest, just meaning the person I'm the closest to in friendship, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I've learned to love this friend at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my friend at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. So in other words, friends, when we see God as the one through whom all of life flows, then we can actually become good friends to each other. God first, relationships with each other second. When that order's reversed, then we've turned that friendship into an idolatry and we'll end up manipulating, abusing, using, worshiping a person. And all of you are wonderful people, but you're lousy objects of worship. So Lewis says, put the order right. God first. God is my closest relationship. People second particularly my brothers and sisters in Christ. When that happens, you and I will often have the wonderful experience of friendship love, which Jesus says is the greatest kind of love there is. Let's pray. Before I lead us in prayer,
collectively, I would ask that you take a moment just to talk with God, to respond to what he's already said to us today in his word. Are you a friend of God? Have you come to know Christ as Savior and Lord? Have you responded to him opening himself up, disclosing who the Father is and what the Father has done, laying his life down as a sacrifice for you? If not, you can do that right where you are now. And if so, you can ask God to deepen that relationship, help you to know him more. So I'd encourage you to do that now. And having done that, I want to encourage you to, in prayer, just consider the quality of the friendships that you have. Are they moving towards the kind of friendship, the kind of love that God has designed you to have and provided the means for you to have in Christ? If not, would you repent of your contribution to that sin? Would you make a commitment to pursue real friendship? Would you let go that hanging on of others who have failed you? Would you commit to go to others that you have sinned against and ask their forgiveness? Father, it's unthinkable, really, that people who by nature and by choice have chosen to be hostile towards you, have chosen to reject your disclosure of yourself and said, no, I'll be in charge, I'll do it my own way, are people that you gave your life for that while we were still in sin, you died for us. That the only thing we bring to the table is sinfulness. And yet you chose to open the great plan of God up and then to ultimately lay down your life for us so that our sin could be placed upon you, we could be forgiven, and then your right, your right standing with the Father could be given to us Thus, we can be regarded as a part of the family of God, as friends of God. What tremendous news that is. And God, your design is that the church, the, the local collection of your people, that the quality of their relationships would be so different, so qualitatively better so much more committed and forgiving and welcoming and loving and sacrificial that God, people without you, 
people who don't know you yet would be drawn to you because of the nature of the friendship they see between us. God, how often I have failed to be that kind of friend to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, thank you that by grace we're growing in that as a family. Thank you that we have more friends now, perhaps, than we used to. Thank you that we're on a trajectory of actually living out the one another's. We pray for more grace, more courage, more conviction. That, God, we would see people come to Christ in part because of the nature of our relationships. We thank you that you are our friend in Christ and that because of that, that we can be friends to each other. And we pray, God, that you'd help us to get over our hurts and our hang-ups and bad habits and by grace, truly be friends to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.